Father, we are well convinced that the only way that we can sing that with truth is because you in your sovereign grace have opened our eyes to see the necessity, the abject necessity of being rightly related to you through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no way to have a soul that is, that is approved in heaven if there be not a relationship with this Savior that the Father has provided. We are a people whose souls are, are safe because of the finished and accomplished work of Jesus Christ, nothing else. Nothing short of his merit will suffice. There is no merit that we can add. And so, Father, we bless you. We are grateful that we can sing with a measure of gusto. It is well with our souls. Father, we come this morning with a sense of expectancy. We are a people who long to enter your presence. We long for you to show up here this morning. We long to spend an hour being reminded of what is central and what is peripheral. We long to have a word spoken to the depths of our soul that will change us. To that end, O oh God, we confess our sin. We ask you to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we want nothing that will separate us from you this morning and separate from or prevent us from hearing something that might have come from heaven for us. So, Father, we've come in here with a mixed bag of motives, but now that we're here, we want to make sure that those are pure motives. A people who long to see you in all of your beauty. And we pray that what we sing and what we preach and what we, uh, what we hear will all be approved in heaven. And that you will stamp your approval by communicating safety, communicating conviction, communicating love and grace to your people who so long to hear a word from you. Our Father, we, we thank you for the providences of the past week. Some have been things that we defined as not so pleasant, but they are still from a hand that is not only sovereign, but a, God, but a, but a hand that is good. And Father, we pray also for the man who will stand behind the podium this morning. People call him reverend. And we all know the truth that he is a sinner like any of the rest of us. That he's in, a need, he's in need of a Savior like all of us. And we pray that you will not use his sin against this congregation. And that they can in some way hear something in spite of him. Not so much because of him. Father, we, uh, we come to a, a time where it's our chance to give, and we do very little giving. We do a lot of taking. Uh, we, um, we shape our world so that we can be in the position to take. But here, one hour a week, just a couple of minutes out of those hours, uh, we get a chance to give.
we get a chance to say something. We get a chance to communicate to you. We get a chance to, to express that we do love you, O oh God. We're grateful for what you've done for us, and we trust that our financial future is safer in your hands than it is in ours. And though we plot and scheme how we can get more of this stuff, ultimately, oh God, we're safe because of who you are. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They come to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who taught his people to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Other quick things. Um, as I read in Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 15. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. The scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his, teach, at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. And then verse 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, What authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. We're ready today to resume our study of the Gospel of Mark, which, as some of you might remember, we set aside way back on Labor Day. Actually, it wasn't Labor Day. It was the Sunday before Labor Day. But you may remember that on that Sunday before Labor Day, I preached the last few verses of Mark chapter 10. And then we launched a study of the parable of the prodigal son and forgiveness, and uh, now we're ready to resume uh, the study of the Gospel of Mark. Um, but I, 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 I want to tell you a few things before we begin here, because I, our study is going to be a little bit unorthodox. So bear with me just for a minute. You may know this, but beginning at chapter 11, verse 1, uh, to the end of the book, six chapters, covers, uh, which is Mark's account 
of the last seven days of Jesus' life. So you've got six chapters devoted to seven days. Now, gang, um, it seemed to me that it might be a good idea that we could treat that uh, somewhat thematically as opposed to consecutively. Very frankly, the, um, the actors in these last six chapters, are, are there's so many of them, the events are, are so varied and the transitions are so rapid that it's, it's unusually difficult to preach through this uh, consecutively or, or sequentially. And so I thought, we'll do it differently. We'll preach through it thematically. But you need to know this too. Some of the portions of these last six chapters we're going to skip. Uh, like verse 25 is a, is a verse in chapter 11 uh, on forgiveness. We looked at that in the, in the previous series. The first 14 verses of, of Mark 11 have to do with the uh, triumphal entry. You know, that's a good Palm Sunday text. And uh, you've heard that how many times? So I, I decided to put that aside. We're also going to save some of this, um, uh, these last six chapters uh, for after Easter. Uh, for instance, chapter 13, verses 3 and following, is a very large segment on eschatology. You know what that is. That's the study of last things. Where we're going we're gonna to hold on to that, and we're going to study that after Easter. And then I, I might also add, we're going to combine some texts. There are two uh, uh, paragraphs in here, in these last six chapters, on money. So I thought I would combine those two and arrange them, as I said, thematically. So all I'm saying is, is that this is going to be a fairly unorthodox treatment of these last six chapters. But I do think it, it provides us uh, the flexibility that, uh, that will hopefully allow us to enjoy um, the last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark. So you can just sit back and, and hopefully enjoy uh, these last six chapters. And, and uh, barring some unforeseen uh, tragedy... Um, we should be through with the Gospel of Mark before school is out. So, I hope you understand what it is that we're going to be doing for the next four or five months. The text opens by telling us that Jesus came to Jerusalem. In the mind of the Jew, Jerusalem was the navel of the earth. And the, and the glory of Jerusalem was the temple. This is the last time in the life of Jesus that he will set foot on that sacred soil of Jerusalem, what will he do now that he's arrived? Where will he go? Well, you'll notice in the text, ladies and gentlemen, that there's not a moment's hesitation. He knows exactly where he's going to go. He heads straight for the temple. The inspector general has just showed up, and very honestly, he doesn't like what he sees. Um, the, the, the noise of huckstering is in the air, and he's not happy at all with what, he's, what he watches. The, uh, the locals called this 30-day period prior to Passover, there was a 30-day month-long uh, preparation for and celebration of Passover, in which um, it is estimated that 2.7 million people trekked through Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. By the way, uh, just so that you might know, uh, those of you who've been to Jerusalem, remember the Temple Mount. It, uh, you have Jerusalem... But in Jerusalem, there is this area where the temple is sitting, and you have to go up to get there. And by the way, the, uh, the Muslims control it. It's the temple, you know, the Golden Dome and all that business. That's up on the Temple Mount. There's also a Muslim synagogue up there. But uh, it's, a, it's an area 
it's a large area, um, but it's just a portion of the old holy city. And, uh, it, and that, of course, is only a portion of Jerusalem. And by the way, you need to save your dimes. We're going to try to go back to Jerusalem in November of 2001. So, but, but anyway, um, here on this Temple Mount, it is estimated that 2.7 million pilgrims arrived every, every Passover, every year. And as they came, uh, it was necessary to provide some 255,000 lambs, along with the doves and all, for sacrificial purposes. And the locals had a name for this 30 days. They called it the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. Annas, of course, was the high priest. Uh, this whole 30-day period with 2.7 million people and all the sacrificing that's going on, the locals called the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. Jesus had a different name. He called it a den of thieves. And very honestly, ladies and gentlemen, even that doesn't tell the whole story. Bear with me for a minute. Passover included, of course, the annual payment of the temple tax, which was a half a shekel. Interestingly enough, the, uh, the, uh, the Levites uh, opted out. They, they got around to paying the temple tax with this ingenious understanding of Leviticus uh, 6, verse 23. I'll tell you about that one of the, that, that, It's unbelievable. But appealing to Leviticus 6.23, they, they got around the paying of the temple tax, but, but to be that as it may, unfortunately, at this time, there were lots of various kinds of coinage that were circulating the land. There was, the, there was Persian and Grecian and Roman and Tyrian. And, and so you had to get your money changed into the kind of coinage that was acceptable in Jerusalem. And so to do that, of course, there were tables and booths set up for money changing. And so money changers sat behind that and they, those tables and did just that. They changed money for a fee. The fee was about 15%. And the profits were enormous. Those booths, those tables set up on the Temple Mount were, were rented from the priests for a fee. And the real excellent locations there on the Temple Mount, the ones that uh, were, were most heavily trafficked, those were obtained from the priests via bribe. But um, the profits were enormous. Then, of course, there was the, uh, the required animals that were necessary for sacrifice. And uh, they, too, were available at this bazaar, for a fee. And, and that would be easy enough, but that wasn't the whole story, because if you were going to um, uh, buy an animal that you were going to present as a, um, uh, as a sacrificial animal, then a determination had to be made as to its Levitical fitness, which required an examination by an expert. His, that expert was called a munchie. And his services were available to you, for a fee, because he had to go to school, you know, for 18 months and had to learn from some farmer uh, what, um, what defects in the animal were permanent and what defects were temporary, which of course affected the price of the animal. His profits were enormous.
But the priests, uh, realizing that the Munchi were, were uh, siphoning off some of their profits, they decided to get in on the act and eliminate uh, the Munchi by selling pre-approved animals, which of course eliminated the Munchi fee, but at the same time heightened their profit margin. And all of this was done in the name of providing convenience. <laughs> yeah. Convenience for the individual worshipers. Those are just two examples of things that could be gotten in this bazaar. You could get your money changed. You could buy your sacrificial animal. And I bet if you looked hard enough, you could probably find a funnel cake. It was a circus, ladies and gentlemen. Try to imagine in your mind's eye the scene around one of these tables, complete with scales. The disputing and the haggling and the bargaining and the arguing, all taking place in this, this one-stop shopping mart. Loud, voluminous human traffic, pushing and shoving and gross abuses and greed and a fight breaking out every now and then vultures some of them human in robes bribes and is and and, and and as if that weren't enough to paint a tragic portrait add to all that the people the poor ignorant people getting mauled by their own religion doing all this because they were convinced that their religion required it of them you know gang what i what struck me about this text is is the picture that you get of a religion that is man-made people frantically running around jumping through hoop after hoop being told by all their religious leaders that uh, that God loved all that stuff and and he, and he loved the people who performed it well burdened ignorant people always being asked to perform just a little bit more and if their performance met a certain established standard, then God will smile, they were told. Jesus shows up, and in essence, he flies into a rage. You ever seen a table flipped over? Have you ever seen several tables flipped over all at the same time? And the people scurrying on the ground to gather up what was theirs. So much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is not simply turning over tables. He is overturning an entire religious concept. And that's the point. 
You know, um, there's a statement made back in Luke early on, chapter 2, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, looks at her baby boy and says, I, I don't understand him. And she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart and all that business. Jesus was always an, enig an enigma to her, but surely nothing could be more enigmatic, nothing could be more baffling than what he's doing right here. The sad thing, ladies and gentlemen, is I think Mary figured out finally who he was. But for some of us, he's still an enigma. You see, the point is, ladies and gentlemen, in all this story, this little story here, is that who Jesus is and what he stands for is one thing. The other stuff, it's all man-made. And it produces some really ugly stuff. You know, gang, um, I was in a conversation recently about Mormonism. And, you, you know, I, I think you probably ought to understand some things about what Mormonism says and what Jehovah's Witnesses say, but you need to understand this. In the final analysis, they're all alike. They're all asking people to jump through hoops. They're all asking people to perform up to a standard, and if you perform up to an acceptable standard, God will like that, and he will thus say, oh, you're, you're good. You come on in here. And the point is, ladies and gentlemen, that only Christ and his Christianity gets angry about that. You see, these guys were not simply guilty of greed. That's bad enough. They were also guilty of misrepresenting, misleading, misdefining truth. And you know what the consequences of that is? Oh, my. Can't you just see in your mind's eye some poor, ignorant, burdened farmer from the outskirts of Jerusalem coming in and wondering what, what, what is all this about but I better do it because that's what my religion says we're told in the text that the, really the only thing that saved Jesus from these murderous priests was the crowd the people loved what he was doing because they knew they were getting gouged so the priest can only stand and watch in a, in a silent impotent rage but they knew we got to get him. We got we to gotta get rid of him because what he stands for and what we stand for are two different things. You know that, don't you? Don't you? All that other stuff that tells you to perform in such a way, in certain certain ways, and it's only gouging you. You know that, don't you? You know that all those religious leaders that told you if you just did this and do that and go here and and do other things and jump through this hoop and perform a little better and and clean up your act and and become a you know a good citizen, 
You know, don't you? That's not what Jesus teaches. Don't you? A day later, Jesus runs into these guys again. And, um, and they've got a question for him. Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Who do you think you are, Baba? Coming into our temple and overturning the tables. Who gave you the authority to do that? And you know, I've always watched Jesus' answer to them, and I've always thought it was simply nothing more than him turning the tables on them and, in an ingenious way and, and, you know, making them look bad. It's kind of a cat-and-mouse game that Jesus won. You know, he, he, in other words, uh, uh, he outfoxed them. But in reality, ladies and gentlemen, he, he answered their question. If you look at verse 32, you will notice that it says, uh, they fear people for all counted John to, be a, to have been a prophet indeed. And so what Jesus says in reply to their question, then tell me this. If he were, if he was a prophet indeed, and that prophet indeed was pointing to me as the Messiah, and you've got your answer. But you see, gang, they didn't like John the Baptist either. But he didn't want the people to know that. They also had this, this very rigid form of uh, ordination. They called it the simaka. And Jesus hadn't undergone any rigid ordination. They also had a way of establishing authority. And when, when they were in a, a, a normal conversation of theological things, the way they did it is always appealed to somebody higher, you know, uh, Gamaliel or Hillel or, or maybe even the Sanhedrin. And if you didn't operate like that, if you bypassed all of their authoritative structures of ordination and all, then you were either ignorant or you, were, uh, you lacked sophistication or you were a rebel. And that's the point, ladies and gentlemen. The point is that Jesus is a rebel. He rebels against all this stuff that tries to say to you, if you ever expect to see God smile, you're going to have to perform up to a certain standard that's set for you by your religious authorities. Both of these little vignettes, ladies and gentlemen, are nothing more than very good, I think, illustrations of the vastness of the difference in what Christianity says and what they have bought into. All this deception, all this craving public applause, all this formal insistence and authorization process from the experts, all this stuff. All of it's just earmarks of religion. They badgered Jesus 
to the point of concluding that they'd got to get rid of him. And all this episode does is paint in prophetic black the conflict between Christianity and all this other stuff. One uh, commentator said that the reason that Jesus was so upset when he saw this circus thing going on, the reason that he was so upset, according to this man, was that it took place in the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles is the place where all the nations of the world could gather and get a glimpse of the real thing. And so what had happened by this, this celebration is, with all this stuff that was going on, the, the, the Gentiles were blocked at getting to the real thing by all this bizarre. And so what the religionist had done is set up barriers so that people couldn't get to the real thing. Yeah. They have, haven't they? Gang, religion is the stuff that always beats people down. It gouges. It deceives. It enslaves. It's cruel. It's always focusing on something external. And I want to say to you, I don't blame the world for hating that. I hate it too. Unfortunately, what the world has done is identify us as that. They think Christianity is that stuff that says to people, just keep it up and perform a little more. Yay. You don't believe that, do you? Do you? Because, ladies and gentlemen, if, you're, if your understanding of the real thing includes hoops and performance and human merit, you'll be right at home at the bazaar. But let me warn you, it's cruel. And may I say to you, it's not the real thing. Two quick points I want to make, and then I'll wrap this up. But because I do want to show what the real thing is. Just, I, I can't help myself, ladies and gentlemen. I, I think there, there's something that grows out of the text that we need to think about. Just, just in terms of application. Here's number one. First, touch people's profiteering and they get furious. There is nothing that brings out the rage of the people like when you harm their prophets. I, I, I shouldn't tell this story because we're, we're running late, but let, let me, let me, when I was in high school, uh, I worked every Christmas at a local department store, and um, I, I was there really to make a, you know, a little Christmas money and, and flirt with the girls. That, that, that's basically all I was there for, and, and uh, you know, the, the people kind of liked me, and, and, you know, I never had to close out the register or anything because I never learned how, and ignorance is bliss. So, uh, you know, come 9 o'clock when the store closed, I was out of there. I wasn't closing anything because I didn't, I didn't want to learn how because then they'd make me. But I remember on one occasion, you know, just a, just a high school junior or senior just having a good time flirting with all the pretty girls and selling a little bit and making, you know, $3 an hour. Um, and one time this, this customer came in and, and they were buying this and they're buying the other. And, and uh, 
then they decided they wanted to buy a suit. I said, well, okay, suits are over here. Let's go look at the suits. But I didn't know, poor ignorant slob that I am, I didn't know that the guys over in suits, they worked on a commission. I was making three fifteen an hour. I took my customer over there, you know, pick out a suit. She wasn't going to have to have it altered. I certainly didn't know how to do that. The woman bought her suit for her husband. I got attacked over in men's suits. <laughs> Get on out of here, boy! And we all know what the reason is, don't we? Boy, you touch people's profiteering and nothing will make them angrier quicker. Second thing, real quick. You know, I know this is not the temple. <laughs> Not a lot of glory here, but uh, but it is the house of God. You reckon there's anything in here that ought not be in here? You reckon if Jesus showed up, there'd be some tables he'd be turning over? You reckon? A lot of money be made on Jesus these days. Is that what we're doing? I hope not. If we are, show us stop. Then finally, let's do this real quick. If your Bible's still open, turn with me to Isaiah 6, and let me show you the real thing, and we're finished. Isaiah 6. Let me read it, beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. We're over at the temple again. We're back at the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, is, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out and the whole house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then... One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken from, with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Here's my point. You see what takes place here. God shows up. And the immediate response of Isaiah is that he realizes how unclean he is. In the midst of realizing he's unclean, God comes and makes provision to take away his uncleanness. You know he's done that, don't you? He did it in Christ Jesus. That's the real thing. And that's exciting stuff. Our Father, oh, that none of us would be caught in this vice grip of thinking that the way to please you is to earn it. Oh, God, we know we can't earn it. And I pray, oh God, that you will 
show us how beautiful is the real thing and cause us to embrace that because indeed it's an exciting prospect to realize that though we are yet sinners Christ died for our sin and that you made the provision necessary for unclean people like me to be made acceptable in heaven all oh grand work of grace we make our prayer of course in Jesus name Amen. we like to close